You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. For the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the theme of satisfaction. And ironically, we're going to be using one of the most dissatisfying times in the history of the people of Judah to explore that theme. We're going to be looking at the, the era of the exile uh, in the, the history of Judah. In 587 B.C., the Babylonian army swept into Jerusalem. They sacked the city. They carried off many of the leaders into exile. And for 70 years, those people occupied space in a land that was not their own uh, by the waters of Babylon. And so we're going to look at three texts that surround this whole theme of exile. Some of this today's text is from Jeremiah. Jeremiah will seed in throughout this series, but we're actually looking at, at texts other than in Jeremiah. And next week we're going to look at a text. This text is kind of the beginning of exile. Next week we're going to look at kind of the full-blown center of the exile. And then uh, the final week, looking at a text that is about the end of exile and the anticipation of that. But exile for uh, Israel was a place of facing consequences because that is, uh, they got themselves into the mess, if you will. But it was also a place, a place where they had a sense of awakening. And that so often happens to us is that when what we have is taken away, we realize what is most important. And that certainly was one of the roles that the exile played in Israel's life. And today we're going to look at the second chapter, a portion of the second chapter of Jeremiah, where if you're looking for kind of a, a thesis statement um, about the book of Jeremiah and Jeremiah's primary, primary uh, recitation of the word of God to the, to the people of, of Judah uh, just prior to the exile... Um, you'll find it here in chapter 2, because what Jeremiah gives us here is God's primary complaint uh, against his people and uh, God's question about um, why they are acting the way that they are. And so let's look at Jeremiah 2, beginning in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of desert and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land where no one passes through, where no one lives? But I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. And when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. Rulers transgressed against me. Prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, once more, I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and look and send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. 
Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, focus our attention on all that it is, on your offer of steadfast love, on your invitation to life, on those things that you wish to give us to provide for sustenance, and take our attention off of all that is not, all that we worry about might, that might be. Help us to see and perceive how you were at work, Lord. And guide us into an awareness that takes us fully into your arms. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Things are kind of sounding loud up there. (laughs) Hopefully we won't have another interruption this week. Uh, But... uh... When I was a kid growing up in Southern California, uh, we used to take two vacations every year. That was our uh, cycle. We would go to the beach uh, in the first part of the summer, and we would go camping on the eastern slope of the Sierra Nevada range uh, in the end, toward the end of the summer in August. And that, uh, that camping trip would always take us up the eastern side of the Sierras along Highway 395. We would camp at places like Whitney Portal at the base of the Mount Whitney Trail or Convict Lake or Rock Creek. Or one year, uh, we tried going to a place called Kennedy Meadows. Uh, but we turned around when we got there because on the way up the road, we saw all these logging trucks bringing down trees. And once we got up there, we figured out why it was called Kennedy Meadows, because there weren't any trees. Um, and so we went to go someplace else, and as we were driving to the other place, uh, my father said he should have known better. He was a staunch Republican. He should have known better. Uh, with a name like that, he never should have gone there. <laughs> but that, that vacation on the eastern slope of the Sierra has always involved a long trek along Highway 395 through the Owens Valley. And it, it is the, the ready-made kind of, of trip that you would expect your kids to be asking, are we there yet, uh, for a couple of hours. Because there's not much to look at. But one of the things that there is to look at uh, as you first enter the Owens Valley in the southern end of it is a, a dry lake bed, Owens Lake. And the, the landscape looks almost lunar or Martian, where you, you see this dry lake bed, it's different colors, and, and it always attracted my attention when I was a kid to seeing that, that dry lake bed of those, those different colors and the, the kind of the, the, the vapor hovering off of it. So we'd, I'd always ask my dad what that was, and, and he would explain. He said, well, that's where there used to be a lake, and that lake dried up uh, because the water that fed it um, uh, was diverted. I was looking into that, um, and uh, in 1905, uh, one of the things that happened in uh, uh, Southern California was that uh, Fred Eaton, who was then the the mayor of Los Angeles, was on his way back from Yosemite, and he drove that same path south toward Los Angeles, and he came through the Owens Valley, and as he did, he had this epiphany and said, ah, here's here's the solution to the problem of water in Los Angeles. And of course, we know that the water problem in Los Angeles was that simply there was none. 
He saw the Owens River, and um, after returning to Los Angeles and convincing William Mulholland uh, to act on this, uh, they began work on buying up land in the Owens Valley and ultimately diverting that water from the Owens River uh, to the L.A. Aqueduct and, and Reservoir. Uh, so the reason that that lake exists uh, and now in its form of dryness is that the source feeding it uh, was flowing through the taps uh, in Los Angeles. In 1913, they, they had a dedication ceremony for the new Los Angeles uh, water aqueduct, and uh, William Mulholland spoke at that ceremony. And he dedicated uh, this, uh, this great engineering feat and he had this to say, and it was all that he said uh, just before they turned on the taps uh, to allow that water to flow. He said, and this is a quote, This rude platform is an altar, and on it we are here consecrating this water supply and dedicating this aqueduct to you, your children, and your children's children. And with that, the valve opened, the band struck up, uh, uh, a song, and the crowd went crazy. And the problem was solved, right? No. Ten years later, they were looking for more water. And four years after that, the Owens Lake went dry. They were on a quest for enough, but in the midst of that quest for enough, there was always the need for more. And in that quest for enough for water for Los Angeles, Mulholland was convinced that he had solved the problem, and so they worshipped the work of their hands that day on that rude altar, as he talked about. But as we know now, there were limits to the power, and it wasn't going to be enough. But then when isn't enough a very elusive goal for us as human beings? The human story, in many ways, wraps itself around this quest for enough. We think we have the power to solve the problem of obtaining enough, but we never quite arrive because we always need more just prior to getting to that goal. And in attempting to get more, we often bump up against the limits of our power to be able to sustain those efforts to get more we find out in those cases that we have very little control. And this is exactly what Jeremiah is saying as he recounts to the people of Judah what God's primary complaint is against them. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, but cisterns that are ultimately cracked and leak and can hold no water. Herein lies the essence of God's complaint against his people at that time and really for all time, is that in our mad dash for enough, we forget that God offers himself as the answer to that quest. We're so afraid of not having enough that we ignore what we have, and we live a life that is fueled by what we don't have, or a fear of what we might not have, and so we try to make adjustments to hold on to those things or pursue those things that we think will give us enough. 
We live in a place of protection rather than a place of gratitude. And what we fail to do is we fail to see and embrace what is right in front of us in those moments and ultimately come up empty. You know, in, in recounting this story about the water in Los Angeles or in, in talking about uh, Jeremiah, I'm not saying that, that human beings ought not to strive for something better, that we ought not to, to develop our dreams and to, to go after and to use our God-given strength to, to take us into places that, that advance us and, and that, that solve our problems as a people. I'm not saying that Jeremiah is kind of giving us a different rendition of the Prometheus story where the Greek gods got mad at Prometheus for, for stealing fire and, and giving it to the rest of the humans. Because our God is not like the gods of Olympus. Our God is not so fragile as to, to worry about his people actually creating and, and enjoying life. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive and that we should just fold our hands and be satisfied with everything. But what I am saying is, is that when we live in a place where enough is what primarily drives us, when we live in a place where we are focused on all that we have not or all that we are not, we will ultimately live in a place of dissatisfaction because the quickest way to dissatisfaction is to focus on what is not to the exclusion of acknowledging what might be right in front of us that is there to be enjoyed in the moment. Often in our quest for enough, we are blinded to the abundance that's right in front of us. And that's what Jeremiah is addressing himself to. I read a poem uh, recently by Wendell Berry, who is a, a, uh, he's a Kentucky farmer uh, who has written poetry and essays and, and fiction. And um, this particular poem is in his most recent um, collection of poems called Leavings, and it's among his Sabbath poems. He, he writes a, a poem every Sabbath, and uh, he says this. Part of this poem says this. The fullness of a cup equals that of the sea, unless the mind conceive of more, longing for women in disregard of the limit of singularity, gluttonous beyond hunger, greedy for money in excess of goods, Lusting for heaven in excess, not only of our worth, which would be most humbling, but of any known human power of delectation. And here's the part. And so the mind grows a big belly, a sack full of the thought of more, and the whole structure of enough, of life itself, which is never more or less than enough, falls into pieces. What a great image of the mind growing a big belly and the, in the quest for more, the, the, the whole structure of enough coming apart because there is no such thing as more than enough or less than enough. When we know enough, we know it. It sneaks up on us. It surprises us like joy. We know when we are dwelling in that place of satisfaction and it might be only for a moment, but we receive it in that moment as gift. And we know that we have enough. So our questing after more or our fears about having too little 
really have nothing to do with that word enough. The word enough calls us to focus on what is and to dwell in that. And Jeremiah's sermon is an attempt to invite his countrymen and women to consider the truth of enough and to wake up to that truth that God is their source of enough. In the face of all sorts of dissatisfaction and fear about what might happen and how they can hold on to what little they have remaining, Jeremiah calls them to stop and turn around and look at the God who offers himself as the fountain of living waters. It's really through a series of rhetorical questions that that Jeremiah gets us to understand this because really what God is saying through Jeremiah throughout this text is, I don't get it. What are these people not seeing? How is it that you can ignore substance and pursue vapor? What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and pursued worthlessness and became worthless? Why isn't anyone asking, where is the Lord? Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? I love that line especially. Cross to the coast of Cyprus and see or send to Kadar and examine with care. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? Look at the gods of Cyprus and Kadar. They're nothing compared to your God, says Jeremiah. Yet they don't give up their gods. They seem satisfied with their gods. Why are you so dissatisfied with the God who brought you out of Egypt, the God who redeemed you, the God who gave you life and wishes to sustain you? It's a great question. And it's essentially the invitation to compare their longings for what they don't have with what they do actually have, to take stock of who and where they are and to receive what is in front of them. One of the words that's used in this text is the same word that's used for vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity and striving after the wind in in Ecclesiastes. Hebel or Hebel or however you pronounce it in Hebrew. That this attempt to pursue after something that that doesn't exist is is ultimately something that, that comes up empty and it's like trying to grab at an elusive prize and trying to corner the wind. And then later on, the prophet says, you've exchanged your glory, kavod, heaviness, weight, substance of relationship with God. You've exchanged your glory for what does not profit. And so God asks, why do you do this? Why do you choose not to stop and turn around and see what is and what I offer? And I think we do it because we basically want gods we can manipulate. We basically, and that's the human story, we basically want gods that we can hold on to and control who we think we can do something in order to get them to ensure our safety or to give us what we need. And yet, ironically, these gods demand more, much more than they ultimately give to us because our pursuit of them consumes us with anxiety. And they lead us into a place of anxiety and fear about enough, and so we become protective. We become focused on contingencies and we fail to see the abundance that's right in front of us. And so we become, like Jeremiah says elsewhere, 
like shrubs in the desert. I love this image in chapter 17 of Jeremiah when he says, verse 5 and following, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make their mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now, in the land of fir trees, it's hard for us to imagine sometimes the shrub in the desert. But let me tell you about the shrub in the desert. It's kind of a wretched thing that has adapted to a waterless environment. It has small, waxy leaves. It's all about protection. It's all about survival. It's all about depending on grabbing what little rain comes and being satisfied with that. And so Jeremiah points to those shrubs and says, that's who you are. You give no thought to what might be running in front of you in terms of living water, but instead you are sold out to the process of protecting what you have or fearing what you might not have. And ironically, ironically, we do not escape the irony of that often until what little we have is taken away from us. And that's exactly what happened in the exile. I have two dogs. We go for walks often in our neighborhood. And one of the things that I've taken to doing since the mortgage crisis is um, whenever I see a for sale sign, I kind of, you know, steer the dog over to the little brochure rack and pull one of those papers out, you know, that describes the house. Maybe I'm the only one that does this. Does anyone... (laughs) Um, and you know, I mean, you've seen those, they have pictures of the home, you know, it's, um, realtors must be the most positive people in the world. Um, (laughs) there's pictures of the home. It tells about the square footage. My favorite was describing this one house that had, uh, mature landscaping. (laughs) It was a little overgrown in other words. And, um, but, you know, you read through that, number of bedrooms, square footage, bathrooms, you know, 2.62 bathrooms or whatever it is. And, and you know, it's, there's all sorts of permutations of that. And, and then finally you get down to the end, and, and there's a thing that we're all looking for. If we've had the patience to read through it, we get down to the end. And what is it that we're looking for, really? The price, right? What are they asking for this house? Because if they're asking this, then my house might be worth that. Oh, no, they're only asking that? Ah. That exercise is is all about living in light of what isn't. That exercise is, is all about anticipating what might be. But I believe that if all my house is is an investment, then I will be living in poverty ultimately. I will be living in a kind of hell of dissatisfaction, especially right now when we hope that the market will turn around. And I don't even know why I care what the price is. I don't want to sell my house. I guess I want to recoup the nest egg that I did nothing to get in the first place.
If you have a house and it's a place to live and a place to engage life and a place to enjoy relationships with family and friends, suddenly that place becomes enough. In our various quests for enough, our God never ceases in his work of tapping us on the shoulder and essentially saying to us, stop, turn around, take a look at what is in front of you and who is in front of you. How are they gift? And how is that gift? And how am I gift? And how can you rest in that? Turn around and look at me, says God, and you will see the source of enough. God is not an object that we manipulate. God is not one who we merely deploy in order to get what we need or to keep us safe. Our God offers himself to us in a living, breathing, dynamic relationship, and there is no such thing as relationships that are manipulated. There's only relationships that are enjoyed and experienced. Because if it's about manipulation, it's not about covenant relationship. In all of my relationships, I have learned that I will be far more satisfied when I look at who is in front of me and attempt to receive who and what they are in that moment, rather than to dream about who and what they might become to make me feel better than myself. Enough is right in front of us. And our God invites us to stop and to receive it, to focus on him and to receive all that he is offering. And perhaps the best place to end today is with Jesus' words. Are you wondering what's enough? Are you thirsty? Let anyone who is thirsty, Jesus says in John 7, come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink. For as the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. Lord, help us to focus on what is. To understand that we belong to you and that you seek to feed us with the finest of the wheat and to satisfy us with honey from the rock. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.